Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, including psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. Hey, Tim, we need to let listeners know that this is our 250th episode. Yes. <laughs> All right. I know we have talked about it before, but in case, in case you don't know, every single one of those episodes has been hosted on Podbean. And every single one of those episodes has been created with our unstoppable passion for behavioral science. Yeah. What do you think about cool. that? I, 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 both are cool, but I <laughs> think there's a couple of things that we should say about that. The first is that our passion, you know, that passion that got this whole thing started and what keeps us going is all about applying behavioral science to improve our home life and our work life. And that passion comes through when we're talking to really cool guests like we have on this episode, but it's also in the researching, scheduling, producing, and promoting each and every episode. And of course, Tim, that passion is also about sharing these episodes with the groovers who listen all around the world. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and in the past few months, we've received the benefit of some additional passion with, in the form of Mary Califf. Who works with us. Yeah, Mary works with us on all the phases of every episode. And we are so grateful for Mary's contributions. So, so, so grateful. And you in particular, because, man, she does a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it's fantastic. All right. Yes. So I think what Tim is leading up to is a really important point, though. Um, that this idea that this passion that we have, hey, takes time. It takes money. And if you would like to help us by putting a little emotional fuel in our engines, mm -hmm. we would love it. Love it. If you would post a review or give us a quick rating on whatever podcast service you listen to. Yeah. And if you'd like to offset some of the hard costs, you can check out our Patreon site and that link is in the show notes. We'd be super appreciative for your support. And the second thing we wanted to bring up is this idea that, hey, Podbean has been a great host for us distributing our episodes. They have delivered every episode to Apple and to Spotify and over a hundred other pod listening apps on iOS and Android. And we want to let you know that if you're thinking of hosting your own podcast and we encourage everybody out there who is thinking about it, hey, first, give us a call because we would love to help you set up and talk about the podcast and what it takes to do it and to do it properly. And then two, call Podbean. Make sure that you're on the best platform available. Yeah. You know, uh, by the way, you know, this is like a free call. Like we just want to talk to people. We want to help people do it. This isn't like our side gig or something. <laughs> just what? to be clear. We're not charging people for this <laughs> no. information, this valuable insight that we have oh, no. on the podcasting world. It's free. No, it is free. It's we're just here to help. Okay. Cause it's part of our passion. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are. And truly, truly, we would love to hear from you because we do. We really do want you to succeed. And we love just talking about this stuff. So definitely drop us a line and we'd be happy to give you the lip smacking sugary goodness that you'll need to record and publish your podcastable idea. Wow. I actually didn't think you'd make it through that. 
Well, you maybe did. I didn't. And there you go. <laughs> I'm showering you with like banners of digital recognition right now. <laughs> Aw, thank you, Tim. All right. Maybe one of the best reasons we work well together is that on some level, at some level, we we get each other, man. We get each other. I guess at some level, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So on to our episode for today. We are featuring a cool conversation we had with Mike Cohen. Mike is a co-founder, the director, and lead storyteller at Common Thread. Common Thread is a behaviorally based pro-social global design agency that works on projects including eradicating polio in a variety of countries, to helping to manage attacks on health workers in Pakistan, to a variety of other really cool initiatives that they do. Mike is based in Dublin and has an MA in journalism from the University of London. Yeah. And aside from his amazing work, we also discovered that he's a very proud father of two girls and is a relatively bad guitar player. His words, by the way, Mm -hmm. but he's kind of just my style. You are a relatively good guitar player. I am (laughs) a absolutely bad guitar player. So... He's well above me. All right. So we talked with Mike about his field of dreams approach to vaccine awareness in all sorts of non-weird places around the globe and how facts and figures do a terrible job when it comes to trying to change someone's mind. Yeah. We also talked to Mike about the book that he co-authored with Alison Zelkowitz of Save the Children, Channing Jang of the Busara Institute, and it's called The Little Jab Book. And it gives 18 really specific, really clever, and really easy to follow tips on how to increase vaccine uptake. And all of it is based on, of course, behavioral science. It's a, it's a very cool book and it's free. Yes. Yes, it is. It's free. Just like the show, Tim. Free. <laughs> and, and, and they did it because of the passion that they have. So there Absolutely. you go. See, it all ties together. All yeah. ties together. All right. And we'll have a link in the show notes for you to check it out if you want. But right now. We encourage you to sit back with a warm cup of pro-social mindset and enjoy our conversation with Mike Coleman. Michael Coleman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much. Really, really excited to be here. We are particularly happy to have you here. I come on a, a long legacy of uh, associations, and we're happy to continue to, to tie this this knot in the in the pro social world. But we're going to get started with the speed round: coffee or tea? Tea. I know I'm in the minority, but since being in Ireland, it's such a social lubricant, you know, and it's a specific <laughs> kind of tea. You know, you uh, it's um, berries tea. We used to have it shipped to to Vietnam even when we lived there. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you know the expression, put put the kettle on, you know, a lot of things get yes. the kettles on. So tea, I'd have to say. I've never heard of tea as a social lubricant. So that's a first for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, Guinness is a social lubricant, <laughs> but that's a whole different type. Different type, yeah. 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 Different type of right. day, hopefully. Different type. Yeah, hopefully is right. Okay. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite sports star? I think it would be musician. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think um, it would probably, do, do they need to be alive? I, I didn't, I don't know. They do not need to be alive on this, this aspect. We've had multitude of dead musicians okay. come back. To <laughs> okay. The conversation is less interesting, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I'd sort of always imagined having, having dinner with uh, Nina Simone and just having a chat. Ooh, I feel like she'd wow. be very frustrated with me and we'd have some intense discussions, but uh, just a great, great <laughs> admirer of her, of her music and her. Her life. Yeah. Wow. That's just, that just opens up a whole round of 
thoughts and questions in my head that we're going to get to. Tim is now like going to be thinking the entire interview about what he's going to ask at the end. I'm in Britney Spears. No. Like, can I go back? No. <laughs> I like the juxtaposition of that. That's awesome. Um, would you rather be at a cabin on the lake or in the city? 1000% cabin on the lake. Yeah. I have a, I'm Canadian. So cabin on the lake is my, is my happy place. Um, and I have a little tiny out of, off the grid shack about four hours North of Toronto. So it's uh when I'm in the stressful moments, that's where I, that's where I go, even in my own head. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to make you jealous, but Tim and I right now are at the cabin at the lake up in northern Minnesota. So we are we are together here recording for the first time and since pandemic began, but we're up here doing a writing retreat. So uh, looks, looks um, beautiful. Yeah. All right. Final speed round question. Are we as a as an overall behavioral science community, overhaul community in general, focused enough on applying behavioral insights into global health concerns and putting people at the center of global health? Yeah, uh, that's a big question. And I think... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I it's a speed round big question. <laughs> no, it just doesn't no. really go, go together. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a great introduction to the conversation. I think, as I, I may go on about later, um, Common Thread was, was born out of sort of seeing that gap and, and seeing that need and seeing all these opportunities for behavioral science to, to really make an impact in, um, in the global public health space. And so I think there's, there's plenty of, of room for, uh, for behavioral science to, uh, to have even more engagement and involvement in, in the space. Well, tell us a little bit about the, in, you know, how Common Thread started. You, you talked a little bit and said, all right, there's an inspiration there. So what was that and where did that begin? Yeah, it's, a, it's, um, I, I won't go too far back. Um, but I, I, I think we were, um, both my partner and I, Shereen Gurgis, who, um, we, we co-founded Common Thread about three years ago, were working on what at the time was the largest global public health uh, program in the world, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, and just sort of seeing missed opportunities and a big gap between a kind of biomedical approach to the issue and a kind of, kind of for lack of a better term, a sort of awareness raising, social mobilization, as it was called, um, approach, which was really social mobilization was about working with communities in order to get them to vaccinate. So it was it was a almost an extension of an awareness approach. Uh, and then seeing in the middle this big space, the sort of vagaries of human decision making live, and and all the complexity of context and culture, and and we just sort of saw broadly, well, where there's a huge space for the social sciences in general. And um, Pakistan was where I started my polio eradication career, and and that's obviously a very complex place. And I arrived at a very complex time. And uh, we both sort of found each other, Shereen and I saying, well, this is really underexplored and uh, underappreciated. And there's this sort of field of dreams approach to the program that if the service is well designed, if uh, people know about it, then then obviously they're going to they're going to take the vaccine. Um, and of course, that's not the case. Can you talk a little bit more about the complex times that you arrived in Pakistan? What What was so complex about that? Yeah, so um, I, I was originally invited to support uh, the program and to support the response in Pakistan uh, during a kind of media crisis where there was a there was a particular news anchor who was uh, making claims about the vaccine that it was making children sterile and that it was um, or, or worse. And uh, 
Within two weeks of arriving and getting off the plane, the Taliban had declared a ban on vaccination in, in the tribal areas of North and South Waziristan. Unfortunately, within a month of my arrival, there was um, the first attempted assassination of a health worker in Karachi. And, and by December, um, there were several, I think it was up to a, a dozen or so um, health workers who'd been assassinated, just going about their, their jobs uh, of vaccination. And so in the face of that kind of um, complexity, I think you, you really see the limitations of, uh, you know, a kind of traditional approach and really trying to understand the, the sort of social cultural dynamics of particular populations and regions and the history and, and where, where resistance to, to immunization was more political than, than sincere resistance or was, um, was something other than a kind of refusal of, of the vaccination service. I mean, the Taliban, for example, had, had long facilitated vaccination teams into their territory. Mm. But there was a moment where it seemed kind of opportunistic. So anyway, so that, that was the kind of state that we, or at least I arrived in into a team and a program that was very mature and very capable. But I think we sort of felt ill-equipped to, to manage something as, as intense as that and, and making decisions before each campaign to say, well, you know, these thousands of women uh, vaccinators should go out and go door to door. As you know, polio, as you might know, polio is um, in these eradication program is delivered as, as drops and vaccinators go door to door with coolers on their shoulders. So there's, there's no um, hiding who's a vaccinator and who's not. And um, going into areas, you know, really, really bravely in many cases, where um, where there where there was resistance or questions and um, trying to trying to support that program in that context was 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 challenging obviously so that was the seed and then and then from there I think really trying to encourage a diversity of opinions I think and views about how how can we how can we do this better how can we try to understand what people need what people want and, and what is their their kind of culture and context to to help make these decisions so Take that to Common Thread today. What is the mission and how are you applying some of those ahas that you had gotten from the other uh, work that you've done into what you're doing now? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a good, it's a good question. I think, you know, understanding that Common Thread was sort of born out of this frustration, I suppose, we very quickly wanted to advocate for the social and behavioral, as we would call it at, at the at the birth of Common Thread, uh, of being you know evidence based that the decisions being made were were based on data. We we did while still at UNICEF actually um, from Pakistan. I, I moved to New York and we worked uh, with the Harvard School of Public Health's um, polling division to think about how we might measure trust and metrics of trust, mm. which even back in 2015 was also was obviously such a critical issue to try to understand and um, to start building, you know, essentially an evidence base. So, so that was that was core. I think the other piece was really trying to make space for uh, interdisciplinarity in the kind of problems we were trying to solve. So we have um, medical anthropologists, we have two behavioral scientists, we have human-centered designers, uh, we have an economist. My background's in communication and political science. And having these this diversity of opinion around the table um, and designing models and approaches that hopefully draw the best from each to, um, yeah, to, to try to work out um, some of these tricky problems. And no one's hiring us because for something easy normally, you know, like, <laughs> we're, 
like <laughs> stunting in Tajikistan, uh, increasing birth registration in Namibia and, and Ethiopia. We've worked on uh, vaccine hesitancy. We've worked on misinformation stuff. Um, so yeah, it's uh, having these really smart people around the table has been has been great and really really ins- inspiring for me anyway. So with an evidence based approach, you know that we know collectively that evidence and facts don't necessarily change minds. What are some of the tools that you're bringing to bear? You you talked about a broad variety of social scientists that are involved. Can you speak with a little bit more depth about how you go about influencing people with an evidentiary-based model? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of stating the obvious, the, f- the first thing we, we look for when um, when dealing with a client is, what is what's the existing data? What, what is the sort of social data that you have available? And, and often with our partners, it'll be things like CAP studies, you know, knowledge attitudes and practice studies. Um, there might be some uh, epidemiological data that can be, you know, sort of used as a, as a proxy for, for certain populations and, and some of their, their behaviors. Generally, we would seek to either do um, research with our partners. We have an, anthrop- uh, an applied anthropology partner that we work with a lot. So we do field research, um, qualitative research. If the budget doesn't allow, we try to do uh, sort of rapid uh, assessments, either in kind of kind of rapid qualitative research with, with communities. Um, and that could take the form of, you know, sort of simple human-centered design methods like card sorting and um, just sitting with people, helping helping them map their experiences and their journeys to a particular service, and so we sort of, no matter what project we take, we're sort of insisting on on having some discussion around what do we think we know, um, mm. and increasingly having the confidence to say, well, you know, we might be approached by a client to say, well, just design us a strategy to uh, to increase the X and Y, and we'll say, okay, great, what do we know? And often there's no data, so. I think that's, um, it sounds like a, a pretty obvious line, but it's a line that we're, we're drawing to say, you know, this is not going to be effective. It's not going to be useful. And uh, on the other end of this, of the scale is really trying to promote and, and insist on where the, where it's possible, some, some testing of the interventions rather than, again, basing it on a certain level of assumptions and limited exposure, even to the, the countries and contexts in which we work. So sort of a roundabout answer to your question. I hope that helps. No, no, that that's a great answer. You mentioned the word client. Can you talk a little bit about who, who is a client for you and, and who's providing funding and how do you go about getting that? Yeah. So generally we're approached by um, organizations, a lot of international organizations like uh, UNICEF, uh, the Global Vaccine Alliance, uh, the World Health Organization. We've done some work with the Gates Foundation, uh, international NGOs like PATH. So, and then the client, um, you know, it's sort of a not very specific term, but you know that 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 usually leads to some work with with local partners and and government, often ministries of health. So UNICEF then becomes a kind of proxy for that relationship, which is which is often great because you know having real access to decision decision makers and the the real complexity and the sort of challenges that they face, the barriers they face in in doing their work is is always really enlightening. So. On your website, you have a fantastic statement. I'm going to read it here. And it's this, is we humans are a complex bunch, fickle, erratic, contradictory, emotional. Some call these obstacles. At Common Thread, we call them catalysts. And once they're understood, a few small careful nudges can move people to a positive change. So I love this idea of like getting this evidence in advance that you've just been talking about. Can you talk a little bit about, all right, I I believe that you're 
getting what those catalysts are. So then how do you then go about utilizing those catalysts and nudging people around that? Yeah, I think vaccination might be a good example. So th- there's often assumptions that, you know, there's a, a limitation in people's knowledge. They just don't know. They, they need to understand the information and, and have higher awareness. What we tend to find is that people have other priorities, you know, what mm-hmm. so often come up in the research. They have kids to take care of. They have jobs to go to. The clinic is, you know, an hour, two hours walk away. They need to take the bus and need to find money to do that. When they get there, they're left waiting for four hours and there's nowhere to sit and there's nothing for their kids to play with. And, you know, they get poorly treated by the health worker once they're finally in there who doesn't necessarily answer their question. By the way, the health worker hasn't been paid in, you know, six months, (laughs) you know, and then when they leave, they don't know what they're supposed to do next. So, you know, they're... Those are the types of areas where we, we can say, listen, and, and, and you will, you'll know this better than I do, that sometimes these, the, the friction, removing the friction can have the most impact. So, um, there's a lot of money and investment in, and thinking about messaging and thinking about public information materials. But frankly, if the service was better organized and better timed and more convenient and all, all those types of things, uh, you would you would see a lot uh, higher uptake in in vaccination. So, I guess it's you know it's a nice turn of phrase, but but in the end, I, I suppose that's what it what it means is really trying to understand what what's really at the root of this problem, and how can we influence it in hopefully simple, cost effective ways. Really, because and these are obviously the contexts in which we're working are often you know just not a lot of a lot of money lying around. People are overworked and, <laughs> and under resourced um, that type of thing. So. Yeah. So I, I guess that's an example of how we, how we would think about problems and then design around them. And, uh, you know, there, we've tried to experiment, uh, with limited success so far, but with just, can you make the waiting experience more pleasant? You know, can, yeah. can you throw a box of toys down for the kids? Can you paint the wall? Can you, you know, organize the, uh, the, the waiting area in a more, uh, sort of human friendly way, I suppose. Yeah. So those are the types of things I, uh, that we're really keen to explore. Well, Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy uh, talks a lot about this thing, talked about the the channel between England and France and the multi-billions they were going to try to spend to increase or decrease the time by, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or something. He said, you could spend a much smaller amount of that by just making that that ride more enjoyable and people wouldn't mind. And I, to, to that point, I think what you're saying is let's let's figure out those pieces that are cost effective that can actually make a difference in how people behave and respond from that, not necessarily building a whole new rail system to get people and deliver them 10 minutes faster at the cost of, you know, billions of dollars when, you know, for, you know, a couple hundred dollars, you could put playing cards on there or something else. And <laughs> yeah, decent have them. cup of coffee or a, you know, a berry, berry <laughs> tea or whatever. Berry <laughs> tea. tea. There you go. Tea. I'm not getting exactly. paid by the way. <laughs> but maybe you should yeah. maybe there you have a sponsor that you can talk well to. now i'm gonna have to check out barry's tea i'll, I'll I'm, send you a box you know. no problem <laughs> <laughs> so you are the co-author of the little jab book with channing jang and allison zelkowitz who we have had as guests and we are very very fond of both of them are remarkable people first of all tell us a little bit about the book because well i'm, I'm I, I won't i won't uh, laud over it until until you, oh, <laughs> until you tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> we loved it. We loved it. Oh, th- thank you very much. And I'm, uh, I mean, you're, you're right to say this was really like a, a 
great partnership between the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics and Channing and and Allison at Save the Children, who's just been this force of nature around, you know, really, <laughs> you know, advocating for the behavioral sciences in this space. And Busara, again, I, I could also laud over who I think no one's doing better at applying behavioral science in the global south at the moment. So we were really, you know, grateful to be um, to be invited to to chip in with um, what we could. But but bottom line, it was kind of I suppose it was designed to demystify to a certain extent the, the behavioral science, how it could be applied to uh, to immunization. I think we saw early on, uh, relatively early on, I suppose, at the end of last year, that there was going to be a, a massive difference in the pace of the rollout of the vaccine between, um, you know, lower and middle income countries and, and high income countries, and that this would be a long, long journey for low and middle income countries. And that's something I think that we wanted to make a contribution to, to really um, think about you know, how can we make this field accessible? How can we inspire overworked, stretched, um, you know, health, health education people, our local partners, um, people working in uh, immunization and, and routine immunization too. I don't know, I suppose give some practical advice and some thoughts about something that maybe from a distance can seem a little bit inaccessible. And as much as possible, tried to ground the examples uh, in, in the same context. I mean, not exactly the same country, but trying to draw from research from lower and middle income countries. So in the end, it was um, 18 kind of practical examples drawing from uh, behavioral sciences and, and beyond, as, as you've probably seen, uh, applied to kind of a immunization journey, you know, like the planning and the, and the pre-vaccination, the vaccination itself, and uh, of course, the post-vaccination and, and what happens afterwards. So yeah, that was that's where it came from, and and we're we're really proud of it. So, who is the book intended for? Who who is the main audience for the for the book? It's quite broad in a way, and and it's been really interesting to see who uh, has approached us since because it's 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 really um, picked up quite a lot of interest. So, there's been um, a lot of really positive feedback from those big organizations, from UNICEF, from WHO. It sits as one of their key resources for countries. Mm thinking about, you know, the sort of social and behavioral aspects of immunization. I think in, initially it was designed for, you know, country country teams, and that can be a lot of different things. Usually it's a mix of those in, in the ministries of health and those that support them. Save the Children staff, um, UNICEF, WHO, some NGOs, people who have to make the immunization programs possible, you know, and uh, yeah. both in its promotion and, and, in, and in the delivery of it. So. Yeah, that's that's the mainly the the audience, I think. Well, you mentioned that it was designed from this perspective of low and middle income countries. And yet I can look at this and go, there are lots of high income countries that could use a lot of these insights that are from here, particularly being in the United States and a lot of the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing here. Some of your specific examples are playing into some of the exact things that we're seeing. So uh, I think it's a it, it can be broadly accepted across many different areas. So that, I think that's good. Well, I, I wanted to note, speaking of vaccine hesitancy, how often and how many vaccines is Bill Gates slipping microchips into the vaccines to, you know, uh, empower people to be robots or something? Who, who told you? 
I mean, <laughs> this is this is meant to be top secret. Oh, <laughs> exposed! Breaking news right here on behavioral grooves. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just to bridge to your last two points, though, it, uh, I mean, I think what's been kind of interesting from the point of view of the of what we do and and with the global pandemic that we're all facing is that we've all those of us working in the field are you know both kind of in it and trying to be valuable and useful in it, but we're also experiencing it ourselves, you know? And there's this kind of moment of incredible kind of global empathy and learning in that, you know, I don't know how your vaccine experience was, but we're all being exposed to the same messaging and protective behaviors and advice, whether you're in a a refugee camp in Syria or you're in a cafe in California, the expectations are are the same. Uh, We're asking the same behaviors, but obviously, the flip side of that is it's just laid bare the massive inequity in vaccine access and uh, the ability for the entire world to be protected at the same level. You, you know, you have, I don't know where the rates are currently, but as of last week, something like 45% plus people in the U.S. or North America more broadly were, were fully vaccinated. And, you know, we're doing some work as part of this partnership with Busara and uh, Save the Children in Nepal, Kenya, and Philippines is a start. And those vaccination rates are something like, you know, I think Kenya's at 0.3% fully vaccinated. I think Nepal is something like 6%. I mean, there's there, the disparity is, is obscene in the context of countries like my own, like Canada, stockpiling uh, vaccines and other countries, you know, just, just waiting for that supply. And then once that supply arrives, I mean, then of course, you'll, you'll be dealing with in those contexts, their own kind of misinformation and uh, those barriers to vaccination, the behavioral barriers to vaccination that we've been discussing. So could you expand on this? This is fantastic. And I'm really glad that we're getting to this. What do you think are the most critical barriers that we're facing? Is it structural? Nepal, the Philippines, my gosh, it's 0.6%. Is it, is it structural? Is it uh, supply chain? Is it, um, is it perception? Uh, what, what do you think are the, the greatest inhibitors? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, again, going to context, it varies from country to country, of course. But I think, I mean, obviously the, the main barrier at the moment is just vaccine access. And even despite the COVAX vaccination facility, which is, you know, um, set up to, to help get vaccines to, to lower and middle income countries, there's a massive shortfall. Then we're seeing things like um, the impact of, of misinformation, you know, as you were, you were, I mean, the Bill Gates, we did a misinformation project in uh, Western Central Africa for the introduction of a new polio vaccine, actually. And that was a lot of um, social media listening and whatnot. And, and that Bill Gates rumor is very, very prominent. It's big. The other rumor that comes up a lot is, you know, that uh, Africans are being used as lab rats, essentially, mm-hmm. that they're being experimented oh. on. And these are the rumors that, I mean, as you know from research, that those rumors that have kernels of truth are, are those that are really the most challenging to, to inoculate against and to, to deal with. So, of course, there is a tragic history of some vaccine testing in Africa. There is a history in a place like Pakistan of the CIA, you know, using a vaccination campaign. What might have seemed from a distance like sort of crazy ideas and uh, rumors are actually have some kernels of truth. But then I think, you know, to get more to the to the other barriers, I think there's there's also a feeling that it's in some places it's not a priority. You know, it's, mm. uh, there's, there's other things they need to deal with. Uh, there's other um, vaccines uh, or diseases, I should say, that are, are more important, that uh, it's a uh, kind of northern disease that, um, that may not be affecting people. 
And then, as you say, I think there is some very fundamental sort of service challenges. You know, we saw some um, some pictures from clinics in Ghana uh, just yesterday, actually, where you have literally kind of hand painted cardboard signs with with a marker. It doesn't establish a lot of trust in people. <laughs> that this is a place where they're going to get a, a service of quality and, and that they can rely on. So there's there's mistrust in the vaccine. There's mistrust in the service providers. When there's, there's questionable relationships with government and with the local health officials. So the, these are these are challenges, I think, um, that we'll have to uh, have to overcome if the world's going to be safe. Well, and one of the things I like about the book at the beginning, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier in in this conversation, is you you have a great set of questions for people to use to to ask themselves before even getting into this. It's kind of that finding the information, making sure we understand what's going on before we actually put a strategy in place. And, and some of the questions are, do they want to get this COVID vaccine? Do they feel they are at risk of getting COVID? You know, are they aware or interested in how many people around them are receiving the vaccine? And do they typically follow what others in the community are doing? All of these preset questions Again, from a behavioral science perspective, you're you're trying to get to the underlying cause that you talked about earlier of whatever hesitancy they might have. How and I might have just answered my own question here, but um, <laughs> you know, how, how how do these questions? How how do you see these being impacting what is actually getting done? Then is is there a difference in in all right if they answer the question differently, do we have a different response? How how does that work? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I mean, as you'll see, what, what was what we tried to do in the book was map some of those, say, diagnostic, self-diagnosis kind of questions to some of the eighteen behavioral. So the barriers can be can be traced back in some ways um, once once they're understood. So yes, I think I think what we're encouraging more and more, what we've always done in our work is that there's no kind of there's no cookie cutter approach to these things and the, the granularity in these places is uh in any place really you know it obviously can can have an impact on how people receive information their trust in local officials and and government and and services their past historic experience with these things it, it all really varies so i think having an understanding of uh, as you say what the what the kind of core the core barriers or core drivers of vaccination are is really fundamental to design a program, whether it's around just getting people there to the program, whether it's around kind of making the service more open, you know, simple things like ensuring that the person delivering the vaccine speaks the language of the person who's receiving the vaccine, you know, sort of understanding those those aspects are, are so critical. So I'm not sure if that's exactly answering your question, but the short version is absolutely yes. We need to. Yeah, I, I don't know if I actually had a good question in there, so you answered absolutely fantastically from Great. my long ramble that didn't actually make any um, question at the end. I'm I'm curious about what are your favorite projects that you're working on now. Yeah, we're, we're doing some work right now in, um, well, first of all, let me speak about the, the Busara and, uh, and Save partnership, uh, which by the way is called Vax Up, which is a, you know, our catchy little, oh, little cool. name for this partnership. Uh, Vax Up is, um, is working, as I said, uh, doing some field work with uh, Busara leading some field research, some rapid field research in Philippines 
Nepal and Kenya. And the idea is that we would then kind of co-create some interventions based on that, on that data and, uh, and roll them out and test them and do it in, in ways that are as rapid and as responsive as possible, which I think is, has been really interesting. And, uh, that's just getting started, but I think we'll allow for kind of localized little jab books and localized mm. solutions that, that can be applied. So there'll be a Philippines version. There'll be, uh, you know, essentially a playbook that, that countries can adopt and, and, and again, try to try to make some of this research come to life. So there's that there's that work we're doing work with the um, in Central Asia and um, Eastern Europe with UNICEF on yeah COVID COVID vaccination demand basically, and that's um, that's been really interesting trying to understand each of those countries' unique problems and and there are things that are coming up regularly are things like healthcare worker hesitancy. So healthcare workers don't want the vaccine, don't trust the vaccine. Wow. And if, if nothing else, we've seen the power of that, that moment of vaccination, that moment of personal connection that's being, like if you get everything else wrong, but if you can get somebody to the clinic and have a positive interaction with someone who can answer your questions, show you a bit of empathy, tell you what happens next and deliver the vaccine effectively, it's massive. It's, it's huge. So when that person has concerns, has, is hesitant, isn't convinced, it's, it's, um, it's problematic, obviously. The other things that are coming up are related to reaching high-risk groups, so refugees, the Roma population, some population in some countries in uh, Eastern and Central Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and sort of their unique needs and concerns, and um, trying to trying to design programs that meet them. Uh, so, so that's been really interesting and exciting. And the Roma population is that uh, is that a, a for, forgive me if this I don't mean to be um, use a incorrect term, but this is the gypsy population, basically. Yeah. This is a, a largely kind of moving, uh, you know, group of people in Eastern Europe. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. With their kind of unique culture, unique language, unique uh, history, and a, a lot of, um, a lot of prejudice and yeah. uh, challenges kind of living uh, a, a lifestyle that often doesn't, doesn't necessarily mesh um, with the countries in which they're, they're based. And many of them are stationary. They're not as mobile as, as maybe uh, in the past. So I think that's a kind of a really interesting, and it's a great example of a, a specific population that requires a specific approach and, a, and, and research to really understand how this vaccination, in this case, a COVID vaccination can be better, better delivered and, and understood. Yeah, I don't know what else. We, we did some brief research on um, setting up a behavioral insights team in the global south for, um, for, the, for Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. Um, yeah. Which was really, really interesting. And, um, you know, at the, again, at the risk of stating the obvious, I think seeing how few, uh, although it's changing, how few sort of dedicated behavioral science teams there were based in the global south was something that, um, was really obvious, but, but also hearing, I shouldn't say obvious, really, really striking, um, and reinforcing the whole kind of weird phenomenon that we were briefly touching on. I think what also did is just sort of confirm that some dedicated, Behavioral science expertise, thinking about global public health and thinking about immunization is is a real need. I am super excited to hear you talk about the collaboration that you're having backs up right with with Busara and and Save the Children. And just as you mentioned here, Busara yourself and Allison with her work are really bringing, I think, some of that behavioral science insight into a much needed area as you've just talked about. And I think that's, it's hopeful. It's, it's promising. It's 10 years, you know, after what's been happening here and you kind of think what would have been or could have been if these things would have been implemented across the the globe in a, 
in a global fashion as opposed to a North America, European-centric fashion, which they have. Uh, and, and you wonder what difference that could have made. But I'm super glad that you are working on that now and super excited to hear what happens over the next few years as you guys are, are, are working in the collaborations and just the individual research that you're doing. And I can tell that Tim is aching to talk about music at this point. I, I, you can't see his leg. It's, it's just going up and down. He's like, can, can we talk about music yet? Can we talk, can we talk is, about music? Yeah. This is the part I was most nervous about. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just use your imagination for a minute here, Michael. Okay. Imagine you have been exiled to a desert island with a fantastic music production system, but you only get to take one body of work, one artist, one band along with you. Who's it going to be? Can I ask a clarifying question? Yes, of course. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. They don't need to help me survive or anything. I don't need to think about physical strength. They're not building. Fair enough. Yeah. No. They don't have okay. to. It's, no. Okay. It's just their their collection of work that you have on your your iPod or whatever it would be. And it's the only one that you have. Maybe they contribute to your subjective well-being. But <laughs> maybe not. how strong they needed to be. That's all. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I would probably say I would enjoy the music and the company of someone like, um, like Jeff Buckley. Oh. I think, uh, I, you know, I don't know how you found the, the whole um, kind of pandemic experience over the last year, but I've really found myself going back to music from when I grew up, you know, and music that meant a lot to me at that time. And that certainly Grace, the album yeah. Grace was certainly one of them. Yeah. And I'm just worried I'm going to lose my Canadian passport if I don't say the tragically hip or something. So I'm going to, I'm going to insert that as well. That's, I, I think it's better that you say tragically hip than like uh, bare naked ladies. For, for, you know, so I'm just going to weigh hey, in there. Both of those are fantastic I, bands. I, I, Some I, are more fantastic than others. Gordon <laughs> Down is, is a fantastic and he, you know, left us too soon. And again, Jeff Buckley left us too soon, too soon. and yeah. kind of wish that there would have been uh, more opportunity to have some more of his stuff. But I fully agree with either Jeff or the Tragically Hip. I would probably agree with Tragically Hip maybe even a little more for me. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever listen to music while you work? Oh, always. Yeah, always. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I, I sort of, it's kind of a constant. It drives my wife crazy because I think she likes a silence a little more than I do. <laughs> but actually, you know, one of the things we do at, at uh, Common Thread is we set up a Spotify playlist with um, some of the countries that we work in. So we just have a contract with, you know, Syria, Tajikistan, some of the other countries I mentioned, uh, Ethiopia, Namibia. We'll kind of scour the internet for music from those places and just, you know, in some small nod to kind of understanding things a little bit or just, immersing ourselves a bit in the in the place it's been really it's been really nice actually that way we uh rob burnett at uh well-told story in nairobi uh leveraged he's a big communication guy and he really leverages the power of music and a dj to reach uh young people primarily in nairobi and uh, actually created a character that uh, shoe jazz is the name of this character that they that they use to kind of put the music out there. I, I think that it's a really cool thing. So I, I, I'm glad you're connecting that way. And I love the concept of trying to get that playlist from those different locations because music does have an insight. I think it brings an insight for people into a, a little bit of that culture. It's not a 
be all end all, but it does help in yeah. grounding people in, hey, this is what they're they're listening to. This is the sound. This is the stories that they're telling with that music. And that that can bring a good lens into what's going on. So I, I, I applaud that. And I'm sure Tim and I can probably groove on that for an entire session. So <laughs> hell yes. Uh, I'm, I'm joining our playlist. You're welcome. Uh, oh, there you go. Michael, thank you so much. It has been our pleasure to have you as a guest on Behavior Grooves. Really, really enjoyed the, the chat. Thanks so much. Thanks. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Mike, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our unchanging minds. Oh, man. I wish I, wish I was more changing. I really do. <laughs> you are the, one of the most changing people I know. I mean, I just, man, I you change like your shirt a- every day. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, but not my shorts. <laughs> That's too much information. Too much information. But there is that, you know, we were talking to Andy Norman earlier yeah. today about the importance of entering conversations with an open mind and the willingness to learn and the desire to learn and to take on new information gets back to that John Kenneth Galbraith comment about when I encounter new information, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. You know, there's this wonderful thing. And I there's a part of me that sort of wishes I was updating my Bayesian bases on a more regular basis. I, I don't know if I'm doing it frequently enough, I suppose, is my question. Yeah, I think the 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 piece that really got to me with Mike's conversation is that this idea that evidence and facts don't change minds. We know that. We've talked about yep. this. We've had this conversation yep. multiple, multiple times. But damn, that makes it hard to really get people aligned around truth and objectivity and science, all of those things, which just makes me sad. It makes me sad. It's a big blind spot, isn't it? That for some reason, we think that uh, facts and figures really aren't going to change my mind, but they'll change your mind. Like if I just compile the right right figures and the right evidence that I can change your mind. But if you bring evidence and facts to me, it's like, no, that that's not going to work. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't like, you know, go back to the messenger effect. You know, that's not from the right person or the right source or that's not from the right, you know, uh, organization or whatever. And I, I can so easily dismantle that. And yet we somehow have this blind spot that it's it's going to work on you if I just bring you the right evidence that, of course, you'll change your mind. See, I actually think the opposite. I, I, I think that we believe that if I'm, so I believe at least that if I'm shown facts and figures that I have an open enough mind that I will change, that I will, yep, I will, I am not one of those ignorant people who won't be changing because the information <laughs> doesn't agree with my pre-held oh. beliefs, right? I am I am an angel above, as they I say. Can, I can that. see your halo, yeah. Yes, you know, <laughs> and, and the fact of the matter is, is I, I know that ye, all these idiots out there that I could give them the best advice ever and, the, and lay these facts out in a way, and yet they're not going to take it. So I think there's yeah. two ways about that. Yes, we we continue to try to change people with facts and figures and knowing that that doesn't work, but we believe somehow it will. And this idea that, you know what, I'm going to be more 
open to those facts and figures and changing my mind. And in reality, we're not because we're human just like everybody else. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I also wanted to talk about the, the things that Mike talked about, vaccine hesitancy and how it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And I thought this was really good. It was a good reminder for me because it's not just uh, someone, it, it, this isn't a homogenous group of people that say, I don't want a vaccine because of a single reason. It's a, a big group of people with a lot of different reasons. And so that makes it, it, it's a good reminder that we're not just big homogenous blobs of social norms. There's a whole bunch of social norms going on here. Well, and, and, it, and we need to think about that when we're communicating. And I think what it did for me is it reminded me because too often I fall into this trap of, oh, your vaccine hesitancy, you must be a right wing nut job who is a science denier <laughs> and anti-vaxxer who believes that the earth is flat and you get That's lumped good. into all of these yeah. other you know negative stereotypes that I have on people who won't take their vaccine. And what he brought to light is, you know what? Sometimes people are just busy. Sometimes there is yeah. a valid concern. Sometimes it's about, I, I can't get there. I have kids and a job and I can't, when am I going to be able to get a time off in order to go get a vaccine? And, you know, if it's any indication of, I'm just trying to go get a test and the amount of freaking you know, information I have to enter in and the amount of time that it takes, it's just wearing me out, much less doing that to try to get your vaccine shot. So it was a nice reminder to not just lump everybody together that isn't vaccinated because there are a multitude of different reasons. Although for many of them, they're just idiots and that's all it is. So there you go. <laughs> it's good that you're so non-judgmental about all this. That's that's <laughs> way to go, Kurt. Uh, it also reminds me of, we saw Katie Milkman's post this morning on her paper about how vaccine lotteries are, in, at least in the United States, are not having the desired effect. Yeah. And, and so it's like, okay, so all these really cool ideas, they need to be tried. And some of them that some that we try aren't going to be as as successful as we hope them to be. Which is the wonderful thing about science, right? Yes. It is yes. the idea that we test these. And so I'm not holding on to this belief because I had the belief. I'm going, well, of course, lotteries are going to work. They're going to work on a number of things. They're going to be your personal aspect of greed that I can potentially win. I mean, look at the, the people that play you know, your everyday daily lotto and, you know, spend yes. money to, in order to have the potential to win. Well, this should do the same thing or provide an excuse for people who are kind of on the fence, but they're in a, in a group that has a negative perspective of this. So you could justify it by doing this. And that's the belief I had going into it. But looking at that data, you know, or at least from the findings that they had, that didn't really work. So I need to adjust my viewpoint on this. Wow. There it is. New data, new opinion. That that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. it, and it was a great, it was a great conversation. Love talking to Mike. That that's that's really where I want to come back on it. So yeah. And the one the other only thing that I loved his the idea of this field of dreams approach, right? Oh yeah. That if we just if we just build it, then people will come. If we just make them aware of the vaccine and all its wonderful glory, that then will definitely <laughs> make sure that people are going to want to take it. And 
that's just not true. And as much as I would like to believe in a world where those facts and figures do change people's minds, knowing that they don't means that we need to be thinking about things in a manner that is reflective of reality and not of a make-believe field cut out of the corn in the middle of Iowa, where, <laughs> by the way, the White Sox and I forget who else they play just played a real Major League Baseball game, but hey. They did. Uh, it, along those lines, there is one other thought that has been on my mind recently about the idea that changing a mind, like changing my mind or changing your mind, doesn't have to mean going from zero to 100 or, you know, mm -hmm. 180 degrees on the, you know, on the curve. Changing your mind can be going from 20 degrees to 25 degrees. Yeah. You, you, changing your mind might be going from 80% positive and confident about something to 60% positive and confident about something. Those are mind-changing events. And kind of getting back to the way Annie Duke talks about thinking in bets, we can think about changing our mind or influencing others to change their minds in small increments. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting piece. And again, with our conversation this morning um, with Andy, that we had, again, it'll be a future episode for people, the idea of having doubt and this idea that we don't have to fully go from zero to 100, but you, even if you just instill a little bit of doubt in somebody about their pre-held incorrect belief, that that kernel of doubt might be enough that if they see additional information, if they find out new things or talk to other people, that that kernel can grow and actually at some point change them from being a vaccine, you know, hesitant, you know, somebody who's not going to get it to being somebody who says, yes, I, I understand that I need to get this and do it. So it's not this hopeless piece. It just doesn't happen fast. Uh, agreed. All right. And with that, I think that pretty much wraps up uh, another long-winded grooving session for us, Tim. <laughs> well, uh, this friend of mine used to quip to me that uh, he'd ask me a question and I'd give him a pageant. <laughs> what, what kind of pageant? What, what is a pageant? It's just, it's just, I just a great image. I just love that image when he would say, <laughs> I ask you a question and you give me a pageant. So, <laughs> oh, well, and, and this was a great pageant. There you go. There you go. Yes, yes, it was. Okay, maybe we should just quickly recap a couple of things that we thought were maybe most usable and most applicable from our discussion with Mike. Like, you know, when we think of changing someone's mind, you can forget about overwhelming them with the facts and the figures. Like, just start with compassionate curiosity, right? Try to understand the way that they acquire their information and what kind of reliability of their sources are, right? And have a conversation, I think, right. is probably a good thing to think about. And if you can, as you said earlier, it's not going from zero 100, it's maybe just changing it a little bit. It's planting that seed of doubt in this strongly held incorrect belief that they have. And this idea that vaccine hesitancy isn't a one size fits all problem, just like every other behavioral yeah, issue. If you want yeah. to design a behavior change initiative, you've got to look at how you can influence the largest percentage of the population with the interventions that you have available and just keep working away, keep chunking away little by little by little. And yeah, it feels really hard, but man, just keep at it. 
keep doing it because it's Absolutely. really, really, really important. Yeah, agreed. Okay. With that, let's end this episode of Behavioral Grooves. And as always, thank you. Thank you for listening. We truly appreciate you spending time with us and we hope that you've learned something. Now, we hope that you take this week and you go out and you find your groove.